This is Mojola Mole. And I'm Blair Begum. This is the CMAJ Podcast. So in this episode today, we are discussing a paper that was published uh, in the recent CMAJ by Dr. Satish Raj, looking at diagnosing and management of postural orthostatic tachycardia. He's a cardiologist out in Calgary. Now, Jola, safe space here. Have you ever heard of postural orthostatic tachycardia? Because I had not. This is always a safe space. And no, I have not. At least not as a syndrome. Um, not even as anything. <laughs> um, it's like all the words put, I've heard of the word orthostatic, posture, and tachycardia, but not all together. So this was a really fascinating read. Absolutely. This paper makes it sound probably much more common than it's actually diagnosed and also sort of a a bit tricky to catch because a lot of the symptoms are similar to other diseases or are sort of vague and maybe get blown off early on. Yeah. And it seems that um, this is debilitating and, you know, the age of onset is very young. And so I feel like it has a lot of, you know, psychosocial implications for patients who have this Um, chronic disease. And as you mentioned, like with other chronic diseases, oftentimes what people say is that everyone thought that it's all in my head, you know, those type of comments. So I'm curious to see if, you know, other patients have had that similar experience. Absolutely. And our guest who we were hoping to have on today had symptoms that began at age 12, but she wasn't diagnosed until she was 24 years old. And unfortunately, she's actually having a POTS flare up today and isn't able to join us. Yeah, and it sounds um, just from what she was describing to just be awful. And so I'm really interested in digging a little bit deeper to educate myself um, and also to educate our listeners so we would be able to serve our patients better. So let's get started. Dr. Satish Raj, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. So we were planning on having a guest today, a person who has POTS, but last minute they became unwell and they're not able to join our recording. So is this typical for patients who have POTS? It can be. One of the the challenges with POTS is that there's an unpredictability to it. There are problems that occur in in certainly good periods and and bad periods. I I often describe the course as being like a game of snakes and ladders. If you go two steps forward and one step back, you're doing well, but but sometimes it's two steps forward and three steps back. And that is part of the challenge. And how long would these symptoms last? It can vary a lot. It can go through uh, cycles where someone especially overdoes their activity on a certain day, maybe for a few days they're they're, they're really wiped out and out of sorts. I think patients um, will feel worse for longer periods of time than you or I who don't suffer from POTS might after predictable stresses. So for example, mm. if they have a viral infection, we all, certainly COVID has been the dominant one, but even pre-COVID, viral infections are part of living in Canada. And I think we are accustomed to feeling unwell for a few days and you pop up. And in many cases for patients, that may be several weeks to oh, sort wow. of get back to baseline. So there, there are certainly elements of that. And complicating all of this is that there is a lot of heterogeneity. A POTS oh. is a syndrome. It's a collection of things and not always the same thing in everyone. So it's not the same underlying pathophysiology in everyone. And that manifests in different ways. So some patients have 
a lot of pain component that in addition to their tachycardia, some have a lot of GI components. Either they're having trouble keeping food down or a lot of abdominal pain and cramping and, and bowel motility. And so these different things can flare up and it's compounded by the fact that they're uh, is an overlap, certainly in a significant minority of patients, where they have a very strong tendency to allergies, to various okay. things, environmental, food, other issues that can also, that may relate to inflammatory stress that may make overall symptoms worse, but that may be the acute trigger. And so how common is it for POT patients to present with other complex conditions? It, to some extent, I think it depends on how hard you look. So some people argue that everyone with POTS has things other than the cardiovascular manifestations. And I'm not sure if that's true for everyone, but I think a high percentage probably do have at least some non-cardiovascular manifestations. In terms of diagnoses that are seen fairly frequently, about 30% across different publications, and including a big patient survey that we have led seem to have a diag have been diagnosed with uh, a form of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, mm. which is a you know a connective tissue. It's actually not a; it's a family of connective tissue disorders. And somewhere around, probably fifteen to twenty percent seem uh, to have very strong allergic components with that. And that sometimes it's the trinity; the three of them go together and contribute different aspects. And there's still a lot of work that needs to be done, and people are trying to do it to try and understand what the relationship is between those different modalities. How difficult is it for POTS patients to get diagnosed? It's a challenge. I think we've, with a lot of disorders, we go through cycles of recognition. There's an internist at Yale who's written articles for the New York Times and books who I heard speak maybe five years ago, and she was talking about how at Yale they're developing a General Internal Medicine Subspecialty Fellowship um, that they were colloquially calling the House Special, the House Fellowship after Dr. House. And the goal was to try and send people, their trainees, to different clinics around the U.S. that specialize in uncommon things. And the reason was because she said, I think correctly, that the best predictor of a doctor making a diagnosis is that the doctor has seen it before. And that's really the challenge in POTS, right? If you don't know it to think about it, you'll never diagnose it. In fact, even more basic is it's hard to diagnose a disorder related to orthostasis, either orthostatic tachycardia or orthostatic hypotension, if you don't measure orthostatic vital signs. And that's something that, you know, at some level, everyone that's uh, you know gone through medical school probably has heard of orthostatic vital signs, but the truth is most of us don't do it with any regularity. And so you have to then think, should I do it in this circumstance? And, and that's the challenge. Satish, listening to this, I'm trying to figure out how could I pick up POTS in the emergency department? It's not uncommon that people come to the ER and say, I've been to multiple specialists, nothing's working, I'm still not feeling well. And they're looking for sort of that second opinion. And I feel under the pressure to come up with some sort of unifying diagnosis. And with all of these um, symptoms that are part of the syndrome, and crossing different body systems, what are some of the, the clues or the red flags that might help someone go, oh, I should be thinking about POTS? I imagine that depending on the dominant symptom, people could end up at multiple different specialists or in their GP's office multiple times. What sort of sets off that, oh, you know what, this is what we should consider? 
So I think to the extent that POTS is the, the diagnosis that we're going for, the key thing that should trigger the thought are symptoms that patients describe that are worse when they're upright and they get better when they lie down. Because the patient's not going to necessarily tell you that my blood pressure's low or my blood pressure's high or my heart rate's low or my heart rate's high. They may say I have rapid, my heart races because people can feel palpitation and may say that. But it may not be that simple. It may be uh, a presentation of I get really short of breath when I'm upright or I can't be up for very long and I feel better lying down. Often the patients that I'm seeing, and, and you know maybe there's a spectrum and I might be seeing people that are on the more severe end of the spectrum, they have challenges not with not being able to not that they're getting shorter breath when, you know, doing their 5K, they get shorter breath when they're standing at the stove in the kitchen trying to do some cooking. They get challenges perhaps walking the dog. They get challenges with basic housework. It does involve being upright, right? These are activities that are hard to do if you're not upright. Once you have it on your differential, what is the next step aside from just saying it's a diagnosis of exclusion? Are are there any specific lab tests or clinical tests that can help me narrow down on this? Yes, I don't think it's a diagnosis of exclusion. It's a syndrome. And so I think the first thing is, and the syndrome largely requires two things and caveats, right? So the two things are, it requires excessive orthostatic tachycardia, an excessive increase in heart rate on standing. And so for adults, we define that as at least a 30-beat increase on standing um, from lying down within 10 minutes. And we're not trying to pick up the heart rate goes up at one minute and comes back down. There are different aspects of physiology on standing. But the idea is with prolonged standing, it gets worse. It doesn't just happen and then get better if you keep standing. That's a different disorder altogether. The other is that patients have to feel unwell. And and we refer to that as orthostatic intolerance. In fact, when the Canadian Cardiovascular Society came out with a position statement on POTS, as well as the broader issue of orthostatic intolerance, we tried to put this on a Cartesian plane to try and make this visually impactful for people that you need to have both excessive, lots of symptoms, as well as lots of tachycardia. And that may seem like a trivial point, but these days, more and more patients have Apple watches and have Garmin monitors and heart rate monitors. Their monitor is telling them that they're unwell, right? And that's, there's a spectrum of physiology and people can have a bit of excessive tachycardia and that's not necessarily a problem but in POTS patients, it is because they feel horrible with it. So those are the two cardinal issues. And it has to be chronic, right? So some have said three months, some have said six months. In the Canadian cardiovascular statement, we settled on three months. But the, the underlying premise is that it has to be chronic and it's not an acute illness. Because there's a good chance with acute illness, if you give it a few weeks, it'll get better. Once you get to three months, I guess there's a chance, but it's less likely. And then we want to exclude other obvious, incriminating, and potentially reversible causes. And by that, that could be some basic medical conditions. So for example, Addison's disease, if you actually weren't able to produce cortisol and you weren't uh, holding on to fluid for that reason and were hypovolemic, that could certainly give you a tachycardia, orthostatic tachycardia presentation. But we don't want to just give someone an extra label of POTS. It does no one any good, right? The What you want is to find the Addison's, and there is a treatment for Addison's disease. And with that treatment, these tachycardia-related symptoms should get better. So there are a handful of things like that that should be excluded. There aren't that many that are clearly the underlying cause, but things like that. And then the other things to be careful about are drugs. A lot of patients I see, for example, 
are co-diagnosed with ADHD. And certainly stimulants raise heart rate. And even things that we don't think about as raising heart rate can raise heart rate in susceptible individuals. So for example, some of the more common uh, antidepressants these days are not SSRIs, but SNRIs, the serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. And the norepinephrine reuptake actually promotes an increase, effective increase in sympathetic tone and promotes excessive tachycardia. And so we actually have data in POTS that um, pure norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors can actually make POTS patients feel worse and make the tachycardia worse. So you want to make sure that there aren't drugs contributing to it. You want to make sure, obviously, there's not acute bleeding, like acute hypovolemia contributing to it. Now you're talking my other, language. <laughs> and the other thing that you, we see sometimes, thankfully not, not too commonly, is prolonged bed rest. And there's lots of good data, much of it funded by NASA, interestingly, that prolonged bed rest will cause orthostatic tachycardia. It causes a, sort of a POTS phenotype. So you want to make sure people aren't spending 20 hours a day horizontal. They need to be exposed to gravitational stress. And what's the overlap with POTS and things such as chronic fatigue syndrome and what's the other one? Myelagic. Myalgic encephalomyelitis? Yeah. Yeah, I'll answer it in two ways. I'd say somewhere around almost 100% of POTS patients are chronically fatigued. It's a Mm. universal complaint. Several years ago when I was still at Vanderbilt in, in Nashville, Tennessee, a colleague looked at our data and took a cohort of patients and tried to map them against the CDC criteria at the time for ME or CFS. And the challenge is the criteria evolve over time, and so it may be different based on more current criteria that are being used. But it was around 50, 55% of our patients actually wow. met CFS criteria, but 45 didn't. So it's not, so I'd, I'd view these issues as overlapping Venn diagrams. I think the issue that I pointed out with POTS that's a challenge, and that is that it's a syndrome and it's, a, it's heterogeneous and not due to one underlying pathophysiology, that issue is uh, true for myalgic encephalomyelitis chronic fatigue uh, syndrome, and it's worse because I think it's a bigger, if not everyone likes Venn diagrams, I'm a big fan, but if the chronic fatigue myalgic encephalomyelitis circle would be a lot bigger than the POTS circle, and then... Okay. Parts of those circles overlap is how I would think about the disorders. Is there a demographic that tends to be more affected by POTS? Absolutely. It's, it's basically uh, women of childbearing age, right? So we've done a big survey, uh, a patient-oriented survey, to try and understand sort of the challenges and who gets it and why and when. And they, the mode, the most common age of onset was 14. And when we're talking about female, male, 90 I think it was around 93 or 94% of that survey. The exact numbers depend on each study and how you sample, but it's certainly north of 80% female to male. This, so it's, it's much more common in women. And this seems like it, it's a massive disabling syndrome. It is. There's a spectrum, obviously, and but it absolutely is. And in fact, there was a, a paper that we've published recently out of that survey trying to quantify some of the economic impact. But absolutely, there's a, a huge amount of inability to do things. I was going to say inability to go to work. Actually, with the mode, the most common age of onset at 14, the first issue is school, Yeah. right? So there's a very high burden that we found of kids that, A, had missed school. That was almost universal, kids that had missed some school because of this illness. 
But what was more troubling is that I, a very high percentage actually had had to be pulled out of school for a while or had to be homeschooled because they weren't able to physically sit in school to, because of to the learn. fatigue or it could be we didn't ask exactly why but i suspect it's a combination of fatigue a combination of orthostatic intolerance I and mean, you have to be able to sit yeah you're not necessarily standing all the time but you're sitting vertical and that can be a problem as well there may be other related issues but through a combination of this there, there are a lot of people that had to be pulled out of school a lot of people that had either uh, had to take a break in university or not do the things that they would do and the, the challenge there is it's not just the acute loss but I view, you know, that decade from, say, 13 to 23 as one where you're um, really determining the, the trajectory for your life in some ways. That's when you're getting a lot of your education done that may determine how you do socioeconomically, not just for that decade, but for the next four or five decades. And also your um, social, like your social interactions, like it it's, must be massively isolating to be a 14-year-old who is stuck at home because they're unwell. It's, it's worse than that. So part of it is it's isolating because you're not interacting in the same way. And part of it is that one of the challenges, and there are many, with POTS is that it probably falls under this umbrella of invisible illnesses. One of the challenges is when you look at these patients, they don't necessarily look sick. And they may even be able to be up and around for a few minutes, and then it wipes them out and they're not able to. And it's hard to look at them and necessarily understand why. And I think that that adds to the difficulty. And at one level, you can say, what do, what do strangers know and who cares? But part of the challenge is it's not just strangers. It's often family, sometimes close family, sometimes extended family. For patients that are a bit older who are in relationships already or married, this is a huge stressor where you have to change the dynamics totally. And it's not, that's, I don't want to make it sound like that's unique to POTS. That's probably true of a lot of chronic illnesses, but that's but that is, it certainly has a very real impact on their lives. Massively. And so what are some of the treatments that are available and how effective are they? So I think we treat some symptoms better than others. I think the cardiovascular issues, the excessive tachycardia, the issues maybe with soft blood pressure, I think, I believe that I can make a lot of people function better. I can't cure anyone. The truth is I can't do these three things and make it all go away. But I think with sort of a multimodality treatment, a lot of people can function better than they were. The goal is to get them to function as best as they can, get them back to work if that's what they want to do. And that's not always possible fully, but usually we get them better than they were. There are other symptoms that, quite frankly, I do a really poor job of treating. Fatigue, which you brought up, is one of them. The patients will often describe a debilitating fatigue, and in some cases, that's what limits their ability to go back to work and function or function at the same level they did before, and there is a great need to try and understand that better. If a family physician is able to you know, diagnose POTS, what, where, what do they do next? You know, in these patients with excessive tachycardia, I think treatment, I would argue starts with a foundation of non-pharmacological approaches, and then we layer upon that pharmacological therapies as needed. So the tachycardia is the hallmark finding. That's the, the low-hanging fruit. We all can measure heart rates fairly easily in clinic. But if you want to get to why they're tachycardic, a lot of POTS patients, and this has been shown by our group and other groups, tend to have a fairly low stroke volume, especially on standing. And part of the issue is there's not enough, we think there's not enough blood getting back to the heart. And that lowers cardiac venous return, lowers stroke volume. So we've 
done, you recommended clinically and done some work to look at the effects of compressing the lower body to try and minimize those fluid shifts. And in fact, there was a nice proof of concept study that one of my PhD students published last year in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, where we looked at segmental compression, looking at full lower body compression from the belly down to bicycle shorts compression versus sort of an, uh, a calf compression versus no compression with repeated tilt tests, where we had people lying flat and then tilting them up to look at the orthostatic tachycardia. And what we showed very nicely was that it was in an almost dose-dependent manner. The more you compressed, the lower the heart rate increase was. So the heart rate still went up, but it went up, you blunted that increase. And importantly, that actually decreased the standing symptoms as well. So we rated symptoms at the end of each stand. And so the, heart, the higher the heart rate went, the worse the symptoms were. So if you could blunt that, you actually improved symptoms. And so we, these were proof-of-concept garments. It's something that no one would actually wear in their right mind in the real world. But we recommend... Have you seen women's clothing? But, we, but we, what I was going to say is that we actually are doing a study right now with commercial garments. So, you know, one, you can prescribe pantyhose-style stockings that are hot, tight, itchy, and ugly and hard to get on. But for some people, they do it because that keeps them functioning. But before going to that, I often recommend things like triathlon tights, compressive garments that are commercial, that, are, that don't look as ugly as medical-grade things, that our young patients are more likely to wear. And that may be what you're referring to, but yeah. things like Spanx, where we focus on compression from the sort of upper thighs to the rib cage, focus on the abdominal compression or the bicycle shorts style compression, because that's actually where a lot of the fluid sits. And then the other non-pharmacological treatment that we found to be important in the tachycardia group and patients with POTS is an aerobic reconditioning program. And this is somewhat controversial because in the chronic fatigue myalgic encephalomyelitis literature, there's a sense that exercise will harm patients. And because of the overlap with fatigue, you know, that, you know, there are some patients that will push back saying they've heard it'll cause permanent damage. But in the tachycardia, certainly in this group with excessive tachycardia, it does help. So we recommend things like rowing machines or recumbent cycles or swimming. And for the aerobic benefit, they have to do it frequently. We try and get people up to 30 minutes, but try and really reduce the load. And the challenge is they're going to feel worse before they feel better. And it often takes, say, six weeks before they notice any benefit. And I have many patients that have gone through this, and, and there is an improvement. There's light at the end of the tunnel, but it's a long tunnel. If the heart rate is really high, often I'll use a little bit of low-dose propranolol, a little okay. bit of beta blocker, just to take the edge off. But the important thing is you don't want to fix the heart rate. If I correct the heart rate, if I normalize the heart rate, patients often feel worse because, again, there's a different underlying problem. Often it's the stroke volume's low and the heart rate's compensatory. But mm -hmm. sometimes if the compensation's too aggressive, it causes its own problem. And that's really what we're trying to fix with, with things like a little bit of propranolol or a, a little bit of mitodrin, um, which is a drug that uh, is a prodrug of an alpha-1 uh, adrenergic agonist. Or more recently, there's a drug called evabridine, that's on the market that is actually approved for heart failure, slows down the heart rate a little bit like a beta blocker, but, but is pretty restricted to the sinus nodes. You don't have other beta blocker side effects if someone is prone to asthma or have other side effects that are specifically beta blocker contraindicated. Interesting. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Dr. Satish Raj is a cardiologist in Calgary. Wow, uh, Blair, that was quite eye-opening, and I learned quite a bit. What are some of your takeaways from it? 
So I think for me, just having it in mind as a diagnosis uh, is something that I'm going to try to have on the top of my mind the next time I'm at work. And certainly the workup sounds fairly straightforward, uh, at least initially, you know, the AM cortisol, making sure their TSH is okay, checking a CBC to make sure this isn't attributable to something like anemia. Those are all workups that I can do in the emergency department, I can do in a clinic, uh, and certainly get the ball rolling. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, for me, as I was listening to some of the gastroenterology symptoms, um, uh, maybe now, especially if I have younger patients, that before we start thinking about whether this is just IBS, it's just to ask them a few other questions, just to also help our family doctors who are always overwhelmed with having to know every single thing in the book, um, just help to guide them to just help them so we can have a better idea of what's going on with a particular patient. Totally. And the biggest takeaway for me, and it's tricky to do in real life because a lot of things are virtual or you're in a hallway in a busy emergency department, but getting those orthostatic vitals, Mm -hmm. you know, they teach you in medical school and it's always that exam answer during an oral board. Make sure you have your orthostatic vitals. But in real life, everyone's so busy, you know the nurses will always give me cut eye if I order orthostatic vitals. And sometimes I'll feel compelled to do them myself just to not put too much of a burden on them. But that just sort of adds to the complexity when you're in this busy emergency room or doing something virtual and and you don't have space to lay someone down and take their vital signs. And I I think was really like key was that, you know, it's not something that you see right away that you have to wait like 30 minutes. And so I, I do think that there needs to be a greater emphasis on like thoughtfulness uh, around this and, you know, planning for it. And maybe, um, you know, as a non-family doctor looking in, is that when you do have that young, you know, usually female patient with this constellation of symptoms that just does not all fit, is that maybe this should be something that should be high on your diagnosis and to create that space for measuring the postural um, vitals and uh, hopefully uh, getting a diagnosis to help them. That's it for this week's episode of the CMAJ podcast. Please remember to share or review our podcast wherever you download it. It really helps us get the word out. And smash that like button. Little levity to the day. <laughs> um, I'm Mojola Amali. And I'm Blair Bigham. Thanks for listening and be well. Oh, God, I stole your tagline. Don't I let know. <laughs> he stole my tagline, You're gonna come everybody. Me. <laughs> Please put this part in. He stole my tagline. I'm saying it next time. We got to shake it up. That's all.